Welcome to the Hot Crime Cold Coffee podcast with Pauline and Angie. Each week we bring you new episodes on Wednesdays and Fridays. Each episode includes our favorite coffee that we're drinking, a missing person spotlight, and whatever case we're currently working on. We also have bonus episodes Monday through Friday, daily cup of true crime in 15 minutes or less, where we share trivia, true crime updates and headlines, and fun facts. So join us. Please be sure to follow us on social media for bonus material. Listener discretion is advised due to sensitive and sometimes violent content. Hey there, and welcome to episode eight of the Hot Crime Cold Coffee podcast. And this is episode seven of our discussion on the Vallo Daybell case. All right. So in today's episode, I have your missing person for you, your featured coffee updates in the Vallo Daybell case. Because, you know, earlier this morning, I mentioned there's probably going to be more. I didn't realize it was going to be today. And then the rest of the timeline, Wednesday's episode, we went through the timeline up until March of 2018, and we'll continue with March 2018 forward. I don't know how far we're going to get, but as long as this episode isn't more than an hour, then that's really all that matters. It's just me today, and... I am at home all alone. Angie is out doing homecoming stuff with her kids. And my kids and my husband went camping. In fact, they're camping in Idaho right now, less than two hours from Rexburg. They left me all to my lonesome. So you're not going to hear any little kids pounding up the stairs, any dogs jumping into my lap nothing. And it's kind of nice because I was able to make myself a tomato sandwich. And anyone who knows me knows that I absolutely love tomatoes. I grow so many every year because we do a salsa party in October where we make about 300 jars of salsa. And one of my favorite things to do with homegrown tomatoes is to make tomato sandwiches. Normally, I can't make myself a sandwich because the tomatoes either don't make it into the house because they get eaten by the kids before I have time to pick them, or they make it into the house. And before I can make a sandwich, my little boy has eaten them all. He's known to eat multiple tomatoes in one sitting, just like an apple. It's ridiculous. So I was sitting down with my tomato sandwich from homegrown tomatoes that I grew myself. And they're super yummy because not only are they grown in my garden, they're also an heirloom variety. I grow about 10 to 15 different types and planning on what I was going to podcast about. 
and my Ronnie starts barking like really loud and very obnoxiously. And I had a bear in my chicken coop. It's that time of year, so I know that I have to be extra vigilant. I did make sure that everything was put away, you know, like trash and bird seed and stuff like that. But I had a bear down at the chicken coop. I'd had one previously in June, so usually I get them at the end of the springtime and then in the fall, just a month or two before it starts snowing. So I spent about an hour and a half shooing the bear away, and I haven't heard any barking since. So now I can finish my tomato sandwich and record the rest of this episode. Today's featured coffee is steeped coffee. And I discovered this coffee about three years ago. I run a camping blog online and it was sent to me to review. It's basically coffee tea bags and it's perfect for if you're on the go, camping, backpacking, hiking, you just take it and pop it in hot water and you have a really good cup of coffee. I have tried other coffee tea bag coffees before. They were not good. Not at all. And this is still my favorite. It's super convenient. And I keep some in my desk drawer, especially when I don't want to brew a whole pot of coffee. Like in the afternoons or in the morning, because then it just goes to waste. Not a lot of people drink coffee at my office. So usually we go through a pot by 10 o'clock and then nobody makes anymore. But there's always hot water available because so many people drink tea. So it's convenient, delicious, and you should check it out. Steeped coffee, you guys. It's perfect when you want a cup and you don't want to make a whole pot or all you have is hot water. You know, you don't need a French press or any special equipment, just a cup, hot water, and a bag of steeped coffee. The next state on our list for missing persons is Colorado. And today for our missing person spotlight, we're featuring Christopher William Vigil. If you haven't listened to our previous episodes, what Angie and I are doing is we're going alphabetically through the states and picking some of the oldest cases, one from each state. Christopher William Vigil has been missing since April 30th of 1978 from Powder Park, Colorado. He was born on August 24th of 1968 at the age of nine. He was last wearing a dark green knit shirt green plaid pants, white socks, blue sneakers, and a maroon or purple denim jacket. He has brown hair, green eyes, and he goes by Chris. Christopher was last seen while hiking with his mother and younger brother on Gray Rock Mountain Trail in the Powder Canyon in Powder Park, Colorado, off of Highway 14. He hiked ahead of his family and apparently lost the trail, and they have not seen him since. His mother reported him missing around 5.30, about three hours after she last saw him. 
There were a lot of different hikers on the trail that day, but only three people out of all of those hikers have come forward and given statements. One was a man named Alan Chupan, and there were two women. The two women who came forward that were hiking, they were hiking together and they saw Christopher and they also saw a man sitting nearby. He was dark haired and dark complected, wearing a straw cowboy hat, had a camera hanging from his neck, and this man has never been identified. He was not Alan Chupin, who was one of the witnesses that came forward. They said that after they had sat down, they heard two voices, possibly that of Christopher's and a man who were talking and then the boy started yelling. They thought maybe something had happened, but they were too scared to investigate. After the women finished eating, they headed back down the trail. They did not find the dark-haired haired man or Christopher, but there was a Diet Pepsi can lying on the ground, which they threw in the trash. At the time that Christopher disappeared, he was carrying a can of Diet Pepsi. The night after Christopher's disappearance was very cold with wind, rain, and snow. The overnight temperatures dropped below freezing. He was unfamiliar with the terrain and he had never been been hiking in that area before. There were multiple sightings of Christopher after his disappearance in Colorado, Wyoming, and Utah. The witnesses who thought they saw Christopher described him as scared, confused, and dirty, but none of the sightings have ever been verified. At the time of his disappearance, Christopher lived with his family in Layport, Colorado. So Christopher may have been abducted because of the suspicious dark-haired man, but he also could have gotten lost in the mountains and never been found. People disappear and get hurt in the mountains all of the time, and because of how rocky and rugged the train is, he could have slipped in between rocks, fallen, gotten hurt. There's a lot of brush and trees. So even though they did a very extensive search, ultimately he could, his body could still be found in that area. The only true crime headline and update I have for you during this episode is... There's another twist to the Chad Daybell and Lori Vallow case. I know that you guys are like, what? Why are you laughing? Well, because this case is never ending. There's always something new. And earlier today during the daily, I was like, oh, well, we'll have more updates next week. I'm sure of it. Well, I didn't realize I was going to have one this evening. So... And it's, I'm telling you guys, it is eye-rolling unbelievable. So a couple weeks ago, Lori Vallow's lawyers filed a motion requesting that all cameras 
and live streaming be banned from the court hearings and the trial. The prosecutor's office agreed that this would be a good move, and they also requested that cameras and video not be allowed in the courtroom during the upcoming hearings and trial. That motion was heard on September 15th, and on September 23rd, Judge Stephen Boyce issued an order banning video and still cameras from all of the upcoming hearings and the trial. His reasoning behind it was that this case is already sensationalized enough, and if the media continues to follow it, it could lead to an unfair trial and even a mistrial. So he banned all of the cameras. It was really unfortunate because, as you guys well know, I, I feel that the public should have access. And it's one of the only ways to ensure that the court system does what they're supposed to do. And there have already been suspicions and allegations that there's some weird stuff going on in this case. I'm not saying it's true, right? But I'm saying... There are some odd things here, like the huge stack of sealed documents and hearings and motions that have happened on this case. There's no way to appeal Judge Boyce's decision. It is what it is. And the media is hoping, and the public as well, they're hoping that at least audio can be streamed because the biggest portion portion of the whole motion by Lori's team was that the cameras were focusing just on her and her reactions to everything. And they felt that it wasn't fair. So everybody thought that that was the end of it. JJ's grandparents, Kay Woodcock, and Larry Woodcock expressed that they were extremely disappointed in Judge Boyce's ruling, that they didn't think that it was fair, and they have family members that can't make it to the courtroom. So just when everyone thought it was all done, and after the flurry of motions that John Pryor filed this week, he filed another one today on September 30th. And he is requesting that cameras be allowed in the courtroom and that all of the hearings be live streamed. John Pryor filed a motion yesterday stating that Chad Daybell wants cameras and live streaming in the courtroom during his trial and all other proceedings that he wants it live streamed for the public. In his motion, John Pryor says, defense has concerns that the lack of public access to the trial would cause financial hardship to members of the families, limit the party's family access, limit the public from adequate access to what is a trial of great interest to the public. The defense seeks an opportunity to assert additional reasons for opening the proceedings to public access. So the hearing for the camera motion 
as well as the petition to sever and the motion requesting that Chad be allowed to be in street clothes is scheduled for October 13th. On October 14th is the hearing regarding Lori Hellis's request that all of the files be unsealed or they be unsealed and the information that needs to be kept private is redacted. I have so many new opinions and thoughts about the Vallow Daybell case, but I'm going to keep it short and sweet because I want to get through as much of the timeline as I can. I think that John Pryor is being extremely strategic. I think that he is using public opinion and public access as part of his defense. It started with the 2021 documentary on 48 Hours when Chad's kids talked about how they thought that their dad was framed and that Lori and Alex were the instigators. And then Pryor has filed a lot of motions, including that Rob Wood and Lindsey Blake be removed from the case. He has suggested that there is there was inappropriate behaviors and actions by some of the prosecuting team and possibly even the judge. He's expressed that he doesn't like all of the sealed court orders and sealed hearings. And I think he is setting it up to use the public's opinion as well as what's in the news as part of his defense. None of the jurors that will be selected in this case have lived under a rock. So the more he can make Lori look bad before her trial, regardless if it's with Chad's trial or if their trials are severed, will be in his benefit. It's sneaky and kind of icky, but it's also brilliant at the same time. And that is just my opinion what his defense is going to be, especially after all of the motions that he filed this week. So last week we ended the timeline after Lori had basically disappeared. Charles had filed for a divorce. He was concerned for his safety and the safety of the kids. He was also concerned with Lori's mental health. She was calling him Ned Schneider and saying that he was possessed by a demon or an evil spirit. And then she just up and disappeared. Tylee was with her for a little bit. And then Tylee moved in with Alex Cox. Lori went to Hawaii for the majority of the time, but she was in, also in Idaho on several occasions. Charles spent a lot of time in March of 2019 
looking for Lori, reaching out to Lori. He checked with her siblings. He checked with her parents. He emailed her. He texted her and she didn't come back. There's a lot of documentation from March of 2019 between Lori and Chad and Alex and Lori about Charles Vallow and him being a dark spirit and is he gone yet or we need to get rid of him. There's just a lot of, a lot of concerns. Charles had filed for divorce earlier in the year after his incident with her when she took all of his stuff, but he actually stopped the divorce proceedings on March 6th of 2019. Chad and Lori were believed to have been together several times in March of 2019, and Charles continues to write letters and reach out to Lori and ask her to come home or does she want to see her son or he just wants her back and he wants her to be with JJ. Towards the end of March, Lori does see Tylee, but a lot of the evidence has determined that she didn't really want to, but she did go ahead and see her. It appears at that time it was more important for Lori to be with Chad than it was for her to be with her own children. I'm not sure if it was in February or March, but Charles successfully was able to switch his beneficiary on his million dollar life insurance policy to his sister Kay. On March 28th of 2019, Lori returns to Gilbert, Arizona, and Charles and his sister are packing up the rest of his stuff. Charles had moved to Houston since Lori had disappeared, and JJ was living down there as well, but Lori didn't really seem to care and didn't seemed to express wanting to see JJ or not. Towards the end of April of 2019, Lori does fly down to Houston to see JJ and Chad goes with her. Now, there are a lot of weird email addresses that were created, funny text messages that were sent as in they were from different phone numbers and there were a lot of Venmo transfers from Lori or Tylee to multiple accounts. In April and May of 2019, there's a lot of digital evidence that is potentially relevant to proving that Chad and Lori had planned on committing the murders but it does show that they were having affair again nobody knows if it was a physical affair or if it was just emotional and spiritual in june of 2019 melanie boudreau Pulowski's 
husband, Brandon Brandon Boudreaux, asked for a divorce. Her extreme beliefs that aligned with Lori and Chad's were really concerning to Brandon. And he felt that he and his kids were at risk, so he filed for that divorce. At the end of May, Chad and Lori possibly meet up in Salt Lake City after Chad had canceled a Preparing a People event. He stated it was a family emergency, but law enforcement is able to match flight dates and things like that, that they really do think that they were just together in Salt Lake at the time. On June 3rd of 2019, Lori moves back in with Charles while he's living in Houston. And a lot of the text messages that have been released to the public, there were some really concerning ones. One of them is that Lori thought that Charles was going to die in a car accident and asked Zulima to use her powers to make sure that he dies. There's another text message that um, she texted to someone basically saying, hey, we need to spiritually go in tonight and try to kill him spiritually. There's just all sorts of crazy stuff. And if I go through every text message and every email, we'll never get through everything. This is just to give you the best timeline possible and I promise we will get into those text messages and emails as they become relevant to the investigation later on. At this time, even though they were calling Charles Nick Schneider or Ned Schneider, um, they started calling him Hiplos as well. Looking back at a lot of the text messages from May and June of 2019, it seems that Zulima was aware that something was being planned. I can't figure out why she hasn't been charged with anything, but one of the possibilities is they don't have enough to charge her in the murder of Charles Vallow or as an accessory. It could also be that they don't want that information released yet because they're still doing a more thorough investigation. There is so much digital evidence in this case that I don't, they probably haven't even gotten through it all. And a huge chunk they've released to the public and I'm sure that there's a lot that they haven't released. So Lori had moved back in with Charles in Texas on June 3rd of 2019 and on June 20th of 2019 she moved out and moved into a rental home in Chandler, Arizona. Sometime in the week after Lori left Charles again, Charles discovers that Lori and Chad were having an affair. He sends an email to Lori's brother, Adam, saying that Lori is having an affair and that he's really concerned about her radical beliefs and he feels that something needs to be done. 
he brings up the fact that she has other email accounts that she's been using and it just makes him super paranoid that something is going to happen. Charles finds out that Chad's wife is Tammy Daybell and that he is still married. Charles sends her an email around the 29th of June. He also brings up concerns about how Brandon is also suffering as well because Brandon's wife, Melanie, is also developing these crazy radical beliefs and both of them are concerned for their safety and the safety of their children. It is unclear if Tammy Daybell ever opened up the email that was sent by Charles. I'm sure it will be brought up, hopefully during the trial if it was opened, because that would be evidence. And I'm sure that Forensic will be able to tell if that email was opened or not. Charles also gives Lori an ultimatum at that time and he confronts Chad as well because he thinks that basically Chad has helped to break up his marriage and Lori has broken up the marriage of Tammy. Charles still wants this to work. He's not willing to give up yet. June 1st rolls around and Charles is planning on talking to Tammy. I'm not sure if he meant to do it by phone or in person, but he wants to make sure that she knows. Charles also talks to Adam again, saying that he thinks that Chad and Tammy are the leaders of a cult and that her extreme beliefs are so concerning that they need to do something about it. So Charles and Adam, they start to plan an intervention that involves Lori and the rest of the family. Charles goes to California for business on July 9th of 2019. And this is also the date that it's suspected that Lori finds out about the intervention that Adam, her brother, and Charles are planning. Her mother had told her something about it. And so Lori reaches out to Alex and some other people. Again, a lot of the information is redacted and we still don't know what law enforcement is still holding on to. And I think that that is perfect timing to end this episode right before Charles Vallow is shot and dies. I already jinxed myself earlier today about new developments on this case. So I guess we'll see what happens next week. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, follow, and you can find us on social media at Hot Crime Cold Coffee. Next Wednesday's episode will be about the murder of Charles Vallow and we'll try to get through to when Lori moves to Idaho.
Have a great weekend, everybody, and we'll see you next week.